listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom in Santa Fe. Soul Searching is a journey where I engage with an array of thinkers from faith leaders to academics to artists to explore deep questions of meaning, questions that all of us ask at some point in our lives, such as why are we here? What is right and wrong? Is there good and evil? Is truth relative or absolute? Is there life after death? And to help us in our journey this evening, we're very honoured to welcome to our show Daryl Lorenzo Wellington, poet, playwright, performance artist, journalist, and particularly the sixth poet laureate of Santa Fe. Daryl, welcome to our show. Welcome, Rabbi Neil. I'm happy to be here. It's it's amazing to have you here. Um, I was reading your book, and I've 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 always had an interesting relationship with poetry. Um, I'm much more a mathematician rabbi than a poetic rabbi, and I've been I've been really moved by these words. Really trying to learn about myself and others. So let's look at this book, the, your recent book, the Psalms at the Present Time. Sure. You know, when we first talked and we talked about your show, Spiritual Search, and I remember I actually made the comment, hmm, I don't know if I'm on a spiritual search. But ironically, and I don't know if you chuckled when you noticed this, actually, there are quite a lot of religious references in my book, right. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which may have struck you as a bit on the odd side. But um, Well, I think that was the, you know, for me as a rabbi in particular, um, you know, I don't want to give my rabbinic assumptions about the text, but but for me, the first question is, why did you use the word psalms? Why why are you calling these psalms, which is a very religious word? Well, it has religious connotations, yeah, heavy ones, but I think it simply means songs. But I was thinking of the psalms in the Bible. Yes, I read them. That and the Song of Solomon were my favorite part, but I'm using the word in a secular sense. I mean, in the sense of stories about trials and tribulations, suffering, which are themes of the biblical Psalms, you know, suffering, uh, survival. And in that, so the most operative words may mean at the present time as opposed to Psalms. But yes, I'm drawing on that connotation self-consciously. Because, uh, I mean, as you said, songs could be a very different aspect. Almost when somebody talks of a song, their immediate thought is the melody as opposed right. to the words. Now, nowadays. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So for you, I, I got the sense that there was a, a sense of not just that journey, but also perhaps authority, an authoritative voice, um, your own personal authority, not you lording it over oh. anyone else. But you could have written poems, you could have written songs, but the fact that you chose psalms, for me, and again, I'm, I'm imposing myself on the text, and this is where I'm asking for you to tell me, no, back off if that's not it. Texts are meant for you to be imposed upon. <laughs> Authors aren't obliged to say one way or the other, but texts are meant to be imposed upon. I really don't know the answer to that. That's interesting, though. Yes, my personal authority, which is my subjectivity, and my subjectivity is a very important part of my poetry. In many ways, I would even say that's what a lot of them are about, my subjective impressions of the universe, which in my case, since I'm a pretty introspective person, let's just say they can have some interesting results. Right. So 
picking one of the one of the poems, the Mad Carousel poem, um, which you know, just to, I'm not going to ask you all questions about religion, but I read it as you being very critical of the way that religion was taught to you as a Southern Baptist. And it's, well, a very, it's a very lengthy poem, so I appreciate we can't explore at all. But I wondered if you could share some of your background that you describe right. in that poem. What, and particularly, what did you hope that readers might learn from you sharing that experience? Well, first, would you like me to read perhaps the first two Absol- stanza? Absolutely. And then we can talk about it. A Mad Carousel Poem. The juxtaposition of passages taken from the King's James Bible, stories, verses, and imagery inside pages flipped back and forth at random. The extemporaneous word draws me to the thin line where my past ends and ceremony or selfhood begins. I studied King James back then, a little boy becoming a bigger little boy raised in Southern Baptist households. My singular experience with the good book since then, meaning since regions of childhood trauma, pastness, meaning since my drama of language and mass, happened decades later when I played a sort of psychological game. Uh, We could go on. It's a very long poem. (laughs) Let me briefly explain what's happening. A person flips through a Bible, and then he falls asleep. And when he falls asleep, he remembers his childhood relationship with the Bible, as well as having the poem become very hallucinogenic Mm. and phantasmagorical. And, of course, what the rabbi, and probably if you out there had read who, if you had read the poem, is asking, well, what the world does this all add up to? But you see, there's one question about my poem that I'm not going to answer. Okay. See, I actually don't think it's a criti- necessarily critical, though it could be. I really don't know. But I wouldn't answer, oh, is it a religious poem or is it an anti-religious poem? Because that's not what poetry is about. Go on. Poetry is about opening you to a world of possibility. I wouldn't answer that because I would fear that then you would think, oh, it's a religious poem. It's not for me. Or, oh, it's an anti-religious poem. It's not for me. I see poetry just as opening you to possibility in the same way when this person falls asleep, he consciously looked at a Bible something he hadn't done in ages, right. and he falls asleep, and he really doesn't know what happens or what it all means after that point. And maybe you shouldn't either, or maybe that's for you to decide. But if you're a believer, and there are other poems in my book, as you rightly point out, that have religious references. If you're a believer, I would say, fine, at least be open to the imaginative possibility. What if there is no God? Mm, right. What, 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 how would that change your world? On the other hand, if you're a non-believer, what if there is a God? If you did think there was a God, how would that change your reality? And that's what I and my poems try to do. So do you see poems as asking questions fundamentally? Yes, asking questions. But I, I like opening you to possibilities in the same way. And you can take this out of the rear of spirituality. Look. People are, in some ways, more defensive about that, about that particular context than others. Because if you, would, if you went to a child growing up poor in a barrier, 
and a burial, would you, and you had a book by William Shakespeare, would you say, oh, you can't read that book because, you know, it's not your world. Though it's good to read books yeah. about your world, too. That's necessary. But you often, but you generally accept that any good book can, you know, open you up to new possibilities if, if it draws you in emotionally and vice versa. If you're a wealthy Anglo, you need to read books about living in the burial because right. all those things open you to different perspectives, different dimensions, different worlds. And your ability to do that enhances your humanity. So I guess you're, you're the sixth poet laureate of Santa Fe. When you're writing poetry, are you writing specifically to open possibilities for a Santa Fe audience? Or, see, I, I don't write poetry, so I, are you, is there a generic reader or is there a specific reader? Because I wonder if writing a poem to open possibilities, if it's a generic reader, that might be harder maybe than, than a specific, I'm aiming this poem at this kind of reader. Well, I'll take that as asking how and if Santa Fe has influenced my writing. I guess, yeah. Um, I'm not sure so much this book, but I mean, I have another book coming because we didn't go into my background much, but I'm originally from the South and I've been here 12 years. And a lot of this book was written through that whole time. But in my next book, I think probably New Mexico will influence it quite a lot right. in, the, in the settings and in the places. And the, and the fascination of this place and all its different cultures and, and its cultural divergency. But in a poem, I'm writing for probably any reader and also I'm writing for myself. And part of the unsettlement and going in different worlds is for me. It's ah. for me as a person, for me to travel in different worlds, you know. Um, poetry, though some people disagree, I don't, it can have, it does have themes, it can send messages, it can do all those things. But no summary of a poem to a message reproduces the poem. So, uh, so you've opened up a, a, another world of questions, I guess, in some sense, about when you say you're writing for yourself, but then you're also saying you're writing poetry to open up possibilities. How is it possible to open up possibilities for the self? Is, it, is that not automatically guided? What's the process? Again, I, I don't know the process of writing poetry. You're going too deep for me right now. <laughs> uh, I, I really don't know. I mean, I just know that. Well, read a lot of poems, and that'll give you a sense of what I mean. And don't just read them to find messages you already have. Right. No, you cannot reproduce poetry. To me, I use the word reduce. Some people would say you can't reduce God to anything. Well, to anything I say that that is a reduction of a poem. Say, oh, I'm simply reading this poem to reach. Uh, I'm reading it to reach a greater understanding of environmentalism or even God. You may do that, but a poem has its own values. A poem has values separate from any creed, any doctrine. It can express any doctrine or any creed, but that is not the entirety of its value. And that's part of understanding art. Art, by its very nature, has a certain amount of contradiction built into it. The thing is that many people feel that this represents a loss of faith or, or backing away from your faith, but I feel that it results in expansion 
of your ability to live in a world of possibilities. All right, look, I'm not very religious, but I read many poems about God. Right. That and when I and I do believe in God when I'm reading the poem, if that makes any and sense. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and if sense. Now, I mean, when I come out of the poem, there's a whole other world, and there are all other factors. That's a different issue. But the level my my valuation of the poem is on the extent to which I am drawn into that visionary world while I'm reading. I think that is a beautiful way of describing your process of writing and reading poetry. I, I really, really appreciate that. We have to take a bit of a pause. When we come back after our, our break, I'd love to talk about uh, Racing Thoughts on Gentrification, this other mm -hmm. extraordinary work that you've written. So we're going to take a pause. My name is Rabbi Neil with Temple Beth Shalom here in Santa Fe. My guest for this evening, Daryl Lorenzo Welling uh, Wellington, excuse me, the sixth poet laureate of Santa Fe. And we'll be back after this break. You're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom in Santa Fe. My guest this evening, Daryl Lorenzo Wellington, the sixth poet laureate of Santa Fe. And before the break, we were talking about that process of poetry and what does poetry mean, and as well as some of the religious responses and, and themes in your poetry. I was particularly moved by a poem entitled Racing Thoughts on Gentrification in Charleston, South Carolina. For those who haven't read it, I wonder if you could share a little of that poem and also why you wrote it. Sure. We may have time for me to read the whole. It would take about three minutes. Is that too long? Nah, it's up to you. You choose, oh, you choose the aspect because I particularly wanted to focus on racial issues in yeah, poetry and in Santa Fe. We'll talk so. about that. Yeah. It's called Racing, Racing Thoughts on Gentrification in Charleston, South Carolina. If you can imagine all the hawk couture storefronts bulging at the seams, Beware the waistline, a suit that can't fit on a Goliathin, nor inhibit his effortless largesse. Sunday morning crowds, besting Saturday night fevers, strolling into the pithiest bond mots, custom-painted signs, challenging man's idiomatic inventory, a storefront renaissance. Then you can painfully reimagine in glorious black Sundays, innumerable vacancies, ratcheting up no such sails inside gritty metal cups that can't rattle. Downtown's failed reclamation project, Charleston's afterthought, blighted blocks universalized, memories emotional draught, no taste touch tang. No streetwise purview, seeds spawn, no Maxine's restaurant church coven, and divine from the left unsaid, flickering, socially acceptable memories on, flicking sentimental neighborhood tall tales on then off, polarities puzzled like a light switch. The sentiments in between, sketching a picturesque light and dark, make a parable. Though no one 
inside the centerpiece paradigm, one city, one coastline, where the moral is given and the temperature is taken, will say who is responsible, nor how the visions possibly describe one low country, one love, one pulse beat wandering the peninsula amicably. Now let's talk about some of that's what that's about. Mm. It could almost be about Santa Fe, right? Well, it's about how in a gentrified place you have, oh, so much glitz and glamour at the beginning. You know, the side of Hawkeye, but then what it does to other parts of town. Everything is taken away. All the old spots are gone. You don't know those spots, but there was a Maxine's restaurant in Charleston, South Carolina. All the those gone, think all those are gone. And the low country, that's a common phrase for uh, Charleston. And so we end with the lines, and you could ask that's this about how about Santa Fe? No one inside the city inside the centerpiece paradigm, one city, one coastline can say how the visions possibly describe one country, one love, one pulse beat wandering the peninsula amicably. And um, that's what it's about. It happens in many cities, but both Charleston, where I came here from, and Santa Fe are very stark examples of it. Yes. So then I guess as we're, as we're starting to explore these racial issues, what for those who haven't seen it for those who haven't experienced it tell us a bit more on, on the effect of gentrification in santa fe uh, on what does it mean to you how how are the issues raised in that poem how are they relevant to santa fe sure like explicitly say it I sure guess. i'll go into that but first let me give a little bit more personal example um let's let's deal everyone i assume in your audience and you, Rabbi Neil, you remember the toppling of the obelisk? Sure. All right. Which, um, the very same week, not of the toppling, but when it was first announced that the obelisk would come down, there's a monument in Charleston, South Carolina, where I'm from, to a man named John C. Calhoun. Mm-hmm. And it's been, like the obelisk, a source of great contention. This John C. Calhoun was a former vice president and a very big proponent of slavery. Um, And he has this huge monument right in the Central Park in Charleston, South Carolina. And it was just ironic to me because originally the obelisk was supposed to be removed peacefully. And the very same week that the mayor here announced that the obelisk would be removed peacefully here, Mm -hmm. the mayor of Charleston announced that the John C. Calhoun monument would be removed peacefully. And it was remarkable, the similarity between the commentary. Many blacks in South Carolina, were, it was an immense feeling of relief that, this, that finally this great burden, you know, because this monument is huge. It's way bigger than the obelisk was, you know, huge, huge, would finally come down. Of course, there was one difference. The John C. Calhoun monument did come down. I mean, the obelisk only came down months later because of toppling. It would be very difficult to try to summarize, except in a great big book, 
um, all the racial conflict in New Mexico and in Santa Fe. But I, I have to tell you, yes, I do believe there's quite a lot. Racial cultural is a better way to put that, I should. Yes, and cultural differences, which leads to unfortunate separation of people and which stifles a lot of um, human potential. I'll give a perfect example of that as with, with the obelisk. Sometimes in high school classes as an experiment, I'll actually bring that up and I'll let the students talk about it. As poet laureate, I'll go to lots of schools. And the rule there is I don't interfere. Mm -hmm. I just let them talk. Mm -hmm. And I'll give you what the consensus opinion that I found usually comes out. And I actually think it's the consensus in Santa Fe that that monument did need to come down. It did need to come down, but that wasn't the right way for it to happen. Okay. But look at what that says. That means even when you have ethical agreement, they both agree it should come down. Because of differences, animosity, because of um, feeling of, um, well, I have to stick with who looks like me. You know, I have to be in this camp or that camp. Even though you agree what the final result should be, cultural conflict keeps it from happening. That's an example of the negative, the negative upshot of so much um, of a tension between the communities in Santa Fe, which I think is considerable. Uh, it stymies progress. It stymies forward-moving action. It stymies the ability to achieve otherwise achievable goals. There's, so to me, that's a poetic example. It, it's, and it's a fascinating example because if, if you're hearing that is the majority perspective, then what that means is that we are being held back by our racial cultural differences and slowed down from progressing. Uh, I guess so... How, how extreme does that go? How extreme do those racial cultural differences go? We've only got about five minutes left, but have you experienced subconscious and overt forms of racism both, and discrimination? Both, both. And the unfortunate truth, if you talk to people of color, this will be a frequent conversation in private because they don't want to, I won't say rock the boat, but they don't want to quote even more disunity than already exists which they feel by, well, by talking or making too big a deal of it, that's what you'll do. But even as poet laureate, oh, the number of people who simply, when they see me, they don't believe I'm poet laureate. I mean, it's, con it's not so much overt hostility as what people call microaggressions, uh -huh. condescension. And there's a lot of it. And that's just an example I see because of my position. But you have so many places, think about this, areas in Santa Fe that certain groups won't go to because they feel, oh, I'll only be condescended to there. Wow. Oh, nobody there will, be, will relate to me. Oh, and then other people who are, yes, I suppose Anglos who won't go to certain places, oh, because there'll be nobody who looks like me there. Oh, because I'll feel out of place there. And people will defend this, and yet, just as in the example I've given, it really only reaps negative results. Mm -hmm. All right. If you, you're, you're trading your immediate comfort for something that brings down the city as a whole. So I encourage people to go to events where there is no one else like them there, where they're experimenting with things outside of their box. 
outside, and that implies to all people, dark on wood, all people, <laughs> because every time I say this, it seems like money people don't th- think I'm talking about them. I'm huh. probably talking about you. Someone will then make the point, oh, well, so many Native Americans, they don't want to go to other events. That's a cop-out. Native Americans, they have a culture with cultural practices that they need to remain secret. But this in no way precludes social sure. interaction. Sure. All right. I, I'm very troubled, and obviously I'm troubled because I'm this white Anglo. You know, when you're saying that the, that people in certain communities, African Americans, don't want to raise racial issues because they don't want to be seen as troublemakers. Troublemakers. But then, how how do you make things better? Exactly. Um, right. That's my very point. So how can we? And maybe. Maybe the responsibility is on the Anglo community, the white community to turn around and say, we need to hear that voice. In some sense, that's what this show serves. You know, and in some sense, to be honest, I think it's important for people to be troublemakers. But I can say that from a perspective of my own privilege. Mm, mm. It's easy for me to be a Mm, troublemaker mm. because there are fewer consequences. What do we do? With a society, and again, I appreciate we only have three minutes. What do we do with a society in which people are discriminated against but feel like if they speak up about that discrimination, then they may end up being more discriminated? Exactly. I think you captured that very You should be a poet, Rabbi. Yes, (laughs) you captured that very well. The next time a person of color, because this has happened to me many times, I've gone to certain events and some people liked it a lot. And I I said something like it was really very... um, Well, there were only whites up there. Um, The perspective was extremely limited. It wasn't multicultural. um, Or just as in someone says it's sexist. When when someone makes an accuse of sexual abuse, what what should be your first reaction? And you know the answer to that now. I hope you do because of the Me Too movement. Should you not take it seriously? Of course not. You you should take it serious. Absolutely. Right. Right. Whether it finally turns out to be true or not in it, but it often will. The first thing you do is take it seriously. Similarly, when a person of color tells you there's something wrong with this picture. Right. All right. There's something wrong with this picture. Um, What is going on here? You're saying it's fair, but it's not fair in the way it actually turns out. You need to take this seriously. You need to stop before you get offended before you react, you're first off the cuff with, mm. oh, I don't see that at all. Well, perhaps that's the point, right. that you don't see that at all. Right. Okay. If you saw that at all, this person wouldn't have to be bringing this up to you. You need to take a deep breath and look at this from their perspective and see what you find. That's, that's really the beginning of the first, the first step. So that's, that's my response to that very good question. I, I so appreciate you you started something a, a conversation here unfortunately we're out of time i'd love to have you back on the show if that's okay at some point to talk about more about this discrimination and particularly about racial trauma and historical trauma and and what we can do to address that and move forward sure i often write poems on that subject let me just give a plug here do i have time every saturday i'm doing a workshop at the uh, oh wait a second oops Well, you can still share the workshop because I think it's important for you to share. Right. Well, I'll be doing a series of work. I am now, by the time this show airs, um, 
I'm not sure where I'll be doing a workshop, but I regularly do workshops around town and look for them in your paper or your news media or Facebook outlook and please come to them. I try to make my workshop spaces a real openness. Some of them have gone very well in that respect. Uh, they're luckily, and I'm happy about that, they've been very culturally diverse. I, I, I will look out for that because I've really appreciated talking to you and I hope that others do too. Um, Daryl Lorenzo Wellington, Sixth Poet Laureate of Santa Fe, thank you for coming to our show. I genuinely hope that you'll come back. Thank you. You've been listening to Soul Searching with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom and from the Interfaith Leadership Alliance of Santa Fe. Until we return again in two weeks' time, keep searching.